How many of you like a good mystery? Do we have people who like mysteries in here? I think there are a few of us. But you know, if you're a, a fan of the mystery genre, you've probably heard a few of the big names out there like Michael Connolly or Sue Grafton, if you're a reader. And if you don't recognize those names, maybe you recognize the names like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Everybody knows who that is, right? The author of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Maybe Agatha Christie, maybe you recognize that name. She's considered by some to be the greatest mystery writer of all times. But these people were all successful mystery writers. It's because everybody likes a good mystery, I think. I mean, isn't it always fun to try and uncover the bad guy and to try and solve the mystery before you get to the last chapter of the book or before you get to the last scene of the movie? I mean, that's fun, right? Everybody likes a good mystery. And one common thing about mysteries that I find is that there's usually somebody who dies in there, right? And you've got to try and figure out who off the guy. You've got to find out what happened to him. That's usually the way it goes. But how many times have you ever heard of someone who would die to tell the mystery. You've probably not ever heard anything like that, have you? How many times have you ever heard of someone who would die to tell the story of the mystery? I mean, it seems a little bit silly to even consider that. Nobody is going to do that, are they? But there's somebody that would. And I want to take some time this morning to introduce you to this one who would be willing to die to tell a mystery. And so I'd like to take a few minutes and I'd like to introduce you to a man that you've heard of before. In fact, if we could title our sermon this morning, we would call it I, Paul. Paul is the guy. About three months ago, we began to study the book of Ephesians, and I gave you a brief history of the Apostle Paul. I told you how he was born in the, the town of Tarsus. We all know that. He was born in this town of Tarsus to a devout Jewish family. They named him after Israel's first king, King Saul, and so his name was actually Saul. His family had raised him in the instruction of the Word of God, and when we talked about him, we heard how important his education was to his family. They cared a great deal about his education. They'd sent him all the way down to Jerusalem at a very young age to study under the instruction of one of the most eminent rabbis of his time, Gamaliel. We know that he was well-trained in philosophy. We know that the guy was incredibly well-trained in Jewish law. There was nothing about Jewish law that he didn't know. He was an absolutely brilliant man. He was absolutely brilliant, and he was extremely driven. He was an expert Jewish law, and he was quite possibly even one of the leaders of the Sanhedrin, one of the group of 70 that led the nation in all things religious. He was devoted. He was fiercely loyal to the Jewish religion. He was fiercely committed to it. And then, after the death of Jesus Christ... Saul saw an increase of the popularity in Christianity, and it really bothered him. He saw this increase in the popularity of Christianity, and Saul was absolutely convinced that Jesus was a fraud. Saul believed that Jesus was a fraud, and he hated Christianity. And not only did he hate Christianity, he hated Christians. In fact, he was so passionately against Christianity, he was so passionately against Christians that he decided that it was his duty to destroy this cult of religion that was based on the following of this fraud, Jesus Christ. He had to destroy it. And so, what did Saul do? I want to take you to Acts chapter 9 and take a look at verse 1. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 says, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So Saul is threatening to kill people. He's going to kill anyone who is a disciple or a follower of the Lord. Went to the high priest, and in verse 2, asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's just the way of saying the church, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
So Saul asked for permission to travel around, find Christians, arrest them, cuff them, and bring them back to the city of Jerusalem to tie them up. And he asked for permission to arrest women. He asked for permission to arrest men. He asked for permission to arrest children. And he was going to drag them all back to Jerusalem. And he was going to try them and presumably have them killed. He was absolutely committed. He was convinced that he was doing the right thing. He was absolutely convinced that he was serving God by killing the people who belonged to this cult, this cult that followed the fraud Jesus Christ. So one day, Saul was on his way to Damascus. Actually, let me take you back a little bit, a couple of chapters. One day, as Saul was actually in Jerusalem, he ran into a guy known as Stephen. And you know the story of Stephen? Saul ran into this guy named Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. And after hearing Stephen's testimony, the Sanhedrin, which may have included Saul, decided that Stephen needed to be put to death. They decided that they were going to kill him. So the men who were preparing to stone Stephen to death had to take off their jackets, of course, because they couldn't be hindered as they were throwing stones at this man to kill him. So they took off their coats, and of course they folded them all up very nicely. And you know what they did with them after they did that? They placed them at the feet of Who? Saul. Take a look at verse 58 in Acts chapter 7. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They said, Saul, we're going to kill this guy for being a Christian. You're standing here keeping an eye on things. Would you mind just taking an eye on, you know, keeping an eye on my jacket, maybe my cell phone and my wallet so that nothing takes off on me while we're taking care of business here? That's how committed Saul was to hating Christianity. That's how committed Saul was to his cause. He hated Christians, and he was absolutely convinced that he was serving God by killing them. He pursued them, he persecuted them, he killed them. That's what he felt he should do. He felt like that was the righteous thing for him to do. But then, you know what happened to him? One day, after he got his letter from the high priest, he was headed to Damascus and he was going to go there and arrest a bunch of people and drag them back and have them killed. He's carrying this letter that he's got from the high priest. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest these Christians. And as he's going there, the glorified Jesus Christ himself confronted Saul and he said, hey, Saul, no more killing Christians, okay? We're done with that. No more killing Christians. From now on, your name is Paul. You're not Saul anymore. From now on, I'm going to call you Paul, and you are the one who is going to be tortured, and you're going to be tortured on my behalf now. We're going to turn the tables for you. I'm going to put you in the ministry. So now, Paul, you are a minister of the gospel, and people are going to pursue you the way that you pursued the Christians. And so Saul changed. He was a totally different guy. He no longer thought that Jesus was a fraud. After he met Jesus Christ in the flesh, he no longer thought that he was a fraud. He believed in him. And would you believe that he believed in him as passionately as he hated the Christians before? He believed as passionately in Jesus Christ as he had hated Christians prior to his conversion. And so immediately he started preaching that Jesus was the Christ. He was a believer. And he started preaching that Jesus was the Christ, and he preached to absolutely anyone that would listen to him. He preached to the Jews, he preached to the Gentiles, he preached to men, he preached to women. He did not care. He was going to preach the Word of God to anybody who would listen. It didn't matter to him. And what he did was, he taught that the law that he loved so much, the law that he had committed his lifetime to learning and to defending and to studying, he decided that he would preach that the law that he loved so much as a young man had been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And he learned and preached that the ceremony of the law was no longer necessary. We don't need it anymore, he says. 
even though I've committed my entire life to learning it and to teaching it and to defending it, I have now come to the place where I am of the understanding that it no longer matters. It's already been fulfilled. The ceremony doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew. It doesn't matter whether you're a Gentile. The special diet, ceremony, the special clothing, all of the sacrifices that you're bloodying the streets with every day as you go up to the temple, none of those things matter anymore. The circumcision, that doesn't matter anymore. None of those things matter anymore. And then he began to tell a mystery. He began to tell a mystery that would ultimately get him killed. Ultimately, his head would be chopped off for telling this mystery. How many of you know what a mystery actually is? All of you, I'm sure. It's something that's difficult or impossible to understand, right? It's something that is a secret. It's something that up until this point nobody has known. I'm going to take you to Ephesians now in chapter 3, and we're going to begin our study for this morning in verse 2. And I'm going to come back to verse 1 in a moment, but we're going to start here in verse 2, and it starts like this. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So Paul writes to the Ephesians church, and he tells the Ephesians that God has given him a special responsibility. God has given him a special administration. That's what a stewardship is. It's a oikonomia is the Greek word, and it simply means something that you are responsible for. It's a special stewardship. The oikonomia was this thing that Paul was responsible to oversee. That's what it means. Something that you are responsible to oversee. And so this thing that Paul was responsible to oversee was given to Paul by God, and it was Paul's responsibility to share it with you. It was Paul's responsibility to share it with all of the Gentiles. And what was the responsibility that he was supposed to share with you? What was the, the thing that he was supposed to do? It was a mystery. He was supposed to share a mystery with you. Paul was given the responsibility of sharing with you something that until this point has been unknown or it has been impossible for everyone to understand. In fact, verse 3 tells us that the mystery is so important, and it was so important that he get this right, that God gave it to Paul personally. God gave it to Paul through special revelation, which is to say that Paul did not receive his understanding of this mystery by way of his own human intellect or logic, but rather God specifically revealed to Paul this mystery by supernatural means. And so this unknowable thing became known to Paul by supernatural means. Great, right? So what is the mystery that is so important? Well, let's go to verse 4. When you read this, this is Paul writing, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Let's just stop right there for a minute. So Paul says this mystery is revelation. This is something that the prophets and the men of old did not know about. The people of the Old Testament had never heard of this before. They had no idea what this was. In fact, 1 Peter tells us that the Old Testament prophets searched the things that they were writing, trying to understand the mystery that they were writing. They had no idea what they were writing about, and they were trying to understand, they were searching their own writings in the effort to understand this very mystery that Paul now is responsible to share with us. Even the Old Testament prophets that wrote about it had no idea what it meant. So what's the great mystery? 
What is the thing that is impossible to understand? What is this thing that the Old Testament prophets wrote about and they themselves did not understand? I want to take you now to verse 6. I'm going to reveal to you the mystery. It says this, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Jesus Christ through the gospel. The mystery is the very thing that you and I have been speaking about. The mystery is the very thing that we talked about last week. In Christ, we have all been united. In Christ, we are one church. Galatians 3.28 says there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one now in Jesus Christ. So absolutely everybody becomes one in Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. That in Christ... Jews and Gentiles, people who are born of the seed of Israel and those who are born of the seed of everyone else are one being in Christ. The law has been fulfilled. Ceremony no longer matters. Your dress does not matter. Your diet does not matter. The rules, the regulations, all of the things that you try to perform day in and day out, they no longer matter anymore. And not only is Jehovah the God of the Jews, but guess what? He welcomes the Gentiles. That's the mystery. He welcomes all of humanity. And aren't you glad that he does? He welcomes all of humanity. The Jews no longer have exclusive rights to God because that's what they thought. They thought all of this time that they had exclusive rights to Jehovah. They thought they were the only ones who had access to God. And Paul comes along and he says, the only thing that matters now is your heart. And just as passionately as Paul had once persecuted the Christians, he now began to preach that you no longer have to keep the ceremonies of Moses. You no longer have to do those things anymore. And he preached that all of the ceremonies of the Jews were gone and that you shouldn't be weighed down by regular you shouldn't be weighed down by ceremony you should not be weighed down by tradition anymore all that matters is your heart that was the message of paul and you know this was so incredibly distasteful to the jews because the jews liked being different the jews liked being better than everyone else the jews liked looking around at other people and and mocking them they liked to identify their unique status in the world and so it was incredibly distasteful to them because they were better than those people don't you know They were better than all of the people around them. And when Paul began to preach that the Jews were no better than the Gentiles, those Jews who once thought of themselves as special got really mad at him. In fact, they became incensed at him. They were incredibly angry at him. They were just as angry with him as he had once been with all the Christians. So after he was converted, the first thing that he did was to take a role as a pastor in a church which consisted of Jews and Gentiles worshiping right there together alongside one another in a town called Antioch. And the people who heard about this, the Jews who heard about this, were absolutely stunned that Paul would pastor a church that was mixed with Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish people who had become Christians in Jerusalem believed that in order to be saved, a Gentile had to first convert to Judaism and then he could be saved. He had to first recognize the law of Moses and he had to follow the law of Moses. He had to keep the law of Moses if he wanted to be saved. And so after a little while... While he was at the church in Antioch, preaching and teaching, the Lord called Paul away, and he called Barnabas to go out with him. And so he sent Paul and Barnabas out of the church, and they sent them out to plant new churches all over the known world at that time. So everywhere that they went, 
Paul and Barnabas started new churches, which consisted of what? Both Jews and Gentiles. They didn't separate them. They said the Jews and the Gentiles, they worship together, and people no longer need to follow those Jewish laws. People no longer need to follow those Jewish traditions. There's neither Jew nor Greek, they taught. There's neither male nor female, they taught. There's neither slave nor free, they taught. For you are all one in Christ. That was their message. You are all one in Christ. This is the mystery that had been hidden from the Old Testament prophets. And now here I come, and I'm telling you what you have not known this whole time. Listen to me. I have a message for you that you have never heard before. This is the mystery of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of the church. And you know what happened? The more he preached, the more trouble he got. The more he spoke up, the more people became angry with him. The more he preached, the more trouble he got into. He was thrown into jail often. They hated him so much that he was thrown in jail really often. He was beaten with rods. He was beaten with whips for this mystery that he was telling. He took a beating for these things. He was stoned one time and left for dead and taken out to the city dump and thrown on the dump because people thought they had killed him by stoning him. They thought he was dead. In fact, many people even believe that at one point he was thrown into the arena to fight with wild animals. Riots consistently followed him everywhere he went. Fights arguments. He had trouble everywhere he preached. And the more he preached, the more the Jewish people hated him. The more he preached, the more people thought of him as someone who was undermining Jewish tradition by letting Gentiles into the church without first converting to Judaism. The more he preached, the more angry they became with him. And so finally, Paul decided that he had to do something He couldn't allow these people to be mad at him for the rest of his life. He had to do something, so he was going to do something to show the Jews of Jerusalem that he was okay. And so do you know what Paul did? Paul decided, I know what I'm going to do. They don't need to hate me, so as I'm traveling around preaching to the Gentiles, I'm going to begin to take up an offering everywhere I go. And so that's what he did. As Paul was traveling around, he began to take up an offering everywhere he went. And so I'm going to take you now to Romans chapter 15. And I want you to look at verse 25 with me. Romans chapter 15. Verse 25, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in their material blessings. So certainly, this would earn favor with them, wouldn't it? Wouldn't this earn favor with the Jews? Wouldn't this earn favor for Paul among the people of Jerusalem? I mean, the Jews in Jerusalem were poor. They were oppressed. And the Gentiles in the church felt that they had received this great blessing of salvation which came to them through the Jews. And so they felt in gratitude they wanted to do something to show favor and to bless the Jews. And so they decided, you know what? We'll give money. Paul, we're more than happy to contribute to the offering that you're taking back to Jerusalem. And so they gave money and they gave quite a bit of it. And Paul said, you know, I've been gathering all of this money, all this time, for all the people of Jerusalem, and I'm going to go down there now, and I'm going to drop it off. So, off he went. He's gone his way to Jerusalem to become a blessing. He wanted them to see that we're all one in Christ. After all, look at how all of these Gentiles contributed to help you out financially. And so as he was on his way, he decided that what he would do is not only take the money, he was going to take a couple of his converts. He was going to take a couple of the Gentiles who had become believers with him so that when he got there, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem could see that God even saved Gentiles. 
They would get there, and the people of Jerusalem would say, wow, you, you really are converted. You're not any different than the rest of us. God must save Gentiles. That was what he was hoping for. So in Acts chapter 21, you can see what happened. Paul got to Jerusalem. He shows up in Jerusalem with all of this money, and he wants everyone to see that there is no longer Jew nor Greek. He wants everyone to see that they're all one in Christ. Undoubtedly, the money that he's bringing from all of these Gentiles is going to help with that. And so his very first stop when he got to Jerusalem was to the brethren, which is just a way of saying the leaders of the church. So Paul goes to Jerusalem, he goes to the leaders of the church, and he stops there to show them, look, here are the converts that I brought with me, here's the money that we've gathered on your behalf. He went to Peter, he went to James, the brother of Jesus Christ, and the other leaders, and in verse 17 it says, they received them gladly. And this is verse 17 of chapter 21. And so if you want to go to Acts chapter 21 and take a look at verse 20. So he told them, Jews and Gentiles all over the world are being saved. And I want you to see what happened. Take a look at verse 20. And when they heard it, this is the brethren, these are the church leaders, they glorified God and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there among the Jews are are among those who have believed? So what they're saying is there are thousands of Jews who have become Christians here in Jerusalem. That's what they're saying. They're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. You see what's happening here? Paul has made his way back to Jerusalem. He stopped the leaders of the church. He says, here is some money that we wanted to give to you to show that we're all one in Christ. Here are a few of the converts. And they said, wow, you know, that's really nice, Paul. They rejoiced. They're happy. And they said, but you have to understand A lot of people have converted. A lot of Jews have now become Christians, and you know what? They still struggle with the old rules, and they still struggle with the old regulations. What is going to happen to you when they find out you're in town because they hate you? Look, Paul, these Jews who have become Christians haven't gotten out of their grave clothes yet, have they? Still got their grave clothes on. They're very, very legalistic. They love the Jewish laws. They love the Jewish traditions. They just can't let it go. They've heard that you're preaching and they don't like your message. They've heard what you're doing and you're telling people that they don't have to be Jews to be saved and they've got a real problem with that, Paul. They've even gone to the point that they followed Paul around from church to church to church as he was planning his churches and they were undermining him by telling all of those churches that Paul is wrong. You first have to be a Jew before you can be a Christian. Those were called Judaizers. And they followed him everywhere he went. And they are really angry with you, Paul, and they aren't going to want you here in Jerusalem. This is bad news, Paul. You can't be here in Jerusalem. This is the leaders of the church. So there's something that we think you need to do. We've got an idea. Let's just do, let's just do a little something here, Paul, as a gesture of goodwill. Take a look at verse 23. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they can shave their heads. Thus, everyone will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. You see what they're saying here? They're saying, Paul, we want you to do something here that's going to look really, really Jewish. 
We want you to do something here that's going to look really, really religious. We want you to do something that everyone will admire you for. See, if everyone sees you taking this Nazarite vow, that's what it was. If everybody sees you taking this Nazarite vow, purifying yourself, shaving your head, if they see you doing this really important Jewish ceremony, they'll see that you're not really against religion after all. They'll see that you're not really against Judaism. So Paul did it. He did what they asked him to do. So he went with the four men, and he purified himself according to the Jewish custom, shaved his head, the whole ball of wax. He purified himself, and it was a seven-day process. And so he was on his way to completing the seven days, and take a look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd, and they laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Well, that's not what happened. Trophimus was one of the guys that he brought back carrying the offering. He was one of the converts. It was a lie. Paul hadn't taken Trophimus into the temple because you will remember that the Jews had built a series of walls throughout the temple grounds to separate different areas so that a non-Jew could not pass beyond the court of the Gentiles. And if he did, it would be a desecration. They would just kill him right there on the spot. Paul hadn't done that. Now, verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. Look what happened. They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. They grabbed Paul, they drag him out of the temple. Now there's this huge riot in the temple and they're going to kill Paul. They grab him and they drag him out. This huge mob begins to assemble. They're all grabbing him. They're all punching him. They're all hitting him. They're all tearing at him. They're going to rip him apart. People are screaming. They're running around to the scene. Some of them are so mad they're picking up dirt and throwing it around. They're acting like a bunch of crazy people. I was going to say something a little less complimentary, but it's a huge commotion. Imagine this. It is a huge commotion. In fact, it is such a huge commotion that it caught the attention of the Roman soldiers who were in Fort Antonia, which was adjacent to the temple grounds. They heard it, and they sent about 500 soldiers down to the temple grounds. 500 soldiers. Look at verse 21. And as they were seeking to kill him, this is the mob that has a hold of him, word came to the tribune. The tribune is a high-ranking officer among the Roman soldiers. So the word came to the tribune of the cohort, and a cohort is somewhere around 800 soldiers, that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once, the tribune, took his soldiers and the centurions, and he ran down to them. So they came running out of Fort Antonia, which was adjacent to the temple, and emptied right onto the temple grounds. So the whole bunch of these Roman soldiers, hundreds of them, came storming onto the temple grounds, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating on Paul. These religious people were about to kill him, and when they saw the army come in, they stopped beating him. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Interesting. So without even knowing what was going on, this high-ranking officer arrested Paul and took him away to keep him from being murdered. Paul was about to be killed. You can read through the rest of the book of Acts. You can see the rest of the story. Paul, as you know, is forced to defend himself before the Jews in Jerusalem. There they devise a plot to kill him. They're going to pay some people to surrender him to them, and he's going to be killed. 
The plot is discovered. And so Paul is moved out of Jerusalem under the cover of night to Caesarea, where he's forced to face trial before Felix. The governor Felix, who puts Paul on trial, knows that Paul is innocent, but he's afraid of the Jews. And so he didn't want to just turn Paul over, but at the same time, he didn't want to detain him. So he decided the best thing for him to do was to not do anything. So this guy, Felix, takes Paul, who he knows to be innocent, and he decides he's going to detain him for two years. Paul's in jail for two years, at which time Felix finally is out of power, and in comes a guy named Festus behind him. Paul's still in jail. Festus comes and he examines Paul, who ultimately sent him to Rome to be tried by Caesar. Do you see what's happening here with this poor guy? Paul has been dogged by these Jews everywhere he goes. This proud Jew, who once pursued and persecuted Christians, is now pursued and persecuted by proud Jews for being a Christian. Do you see that? For five years, Paul was in jail over this whole thing. For five years, he was under arrest. Do you see why he was in so much trouble? Do you see what happened to him? What was it that Paul had done that he would ultimately die for? He was in trouble for preaching the mystery. And what was the mystery? The mystery is that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither female nor male, for you are all one in Christ. So now Paul is in Rome. He's been there for about five years waiting for his accusers to come to Rome and hold trial against him. He's under house arrest and he's chained to a Roman guard. And as he sits there, he takes out a pen and paper and he writes a letter to a church that he'd planted in Ephesus. And in the third chapter, this is what he wrote in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on your behalf. Do you see that? Paul was not a prisoner of the Jews, was he? Was Paul a prisoner of the Romans? No. Paul says, I, Paul, am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm not a victim. I'm not mistreated. I'm not a prisoner of the Jews. I'm not a prisoner of the Romans. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner of the message that he was given. He was a prisoner of the oikonomia that had been placed in his heart, this responsibility to teach the mystery and to share the mystery. He was a prisoner of his responsibility to tell you the mystery. That was why he was in jail. He was a prisoner of his responsibility. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. See, it was the thing that he preached that made him captive. It was what he taught that made him a captive. It was his stewardship of the thing that had been entrusted to him that made him a captive. It was the trust that Jesus Christ had put in him to teach this mystery that had held him captive. And he believed it to the point that he was even willing to preach it until he was murdered for preaching it. You see, no matter what it cost him, he was going to discharge his oikonomia. He was going to discharge his duty. He was going to discharge his responsibility. He was going to discharge his duty. Listen, the mystery 
of the United Church of Jesus Christ. The mystery of one church was worth so much to Paul that he would die for it. He wanted you to get it. He wanted you to understand it. And he would preach it over and over and over and over again in the face of all sorts of opposition because he wanted you to understand it because it would change the way that you would live. He knew that it would change the way that you would live. Paul wants you to know that we don't divide the church. We don't split the church into buckets filled with Jews over here and Gentiles over there. We don't split the church into buckets where we put women here and men over there. We don't split the church into buckets where we put people of this color on this side and people of that color on that side. We don't fill a bucket with different people inside the church. We are one in Christ. And Paul believed it to the point where he was willing to die to teach that truth. We're all one. We're all united. There are none of you any better than the one sitting next to you. There are none any worse than the one sitting next to you. You are all one. We are one body in Christ. That's what he's teaching And Paul was so committed to this oikonomia. He was so committed to his responsibility that he would die to make sure that you benefited from it. May I suggest to you that every single one of you in this room has an oikonomia. Each of you has a duty to discharge. Each of you has a stewardship. Each of you has a responsibility Each of you has a spiritual responsibility as part of that one united body of Jesus Christ. Each of you has a responsibility to the body of Jesus Christ. Paul says we are one body and we have many parts and that each single part has its own individual function inside the body. Did you know that that's what he taught? We all have a responsibility inside of our body. Yesterday... Right here in this room, we had a room full of people who are committed to fulfilling their spiritual oikonomia to Jesus Christ. We had a room full of people who were committed to fulfilling their stewardship right here at Root River Church. And you can look around you today, and I want you to know that you can see all the committed members of this body who are performing their oikonomia. They're performing their stewardship. They're performing their responsibility so that you and I can receive the Word of God to the building up of your spirit and the saving of your eternal soul and the building of the kingdom of God. Did you know that? I mean, look around you. I wonder, do you recognize the service of the people sitting next to you? Do you realize how committed they are to discharging the responsibility that Jesus Christ has placed on them? And you can look around you and you can see those people all around you today. And they do it because they're committed to the Word of God and they're committed to you hearing the message that we are all one. And so I just wonder how committed all of the rest of you are. In fact, not just, I mean all of us. Think about that. How committed are we to discharge the oikonomia, to discharge the spiritual stewardship that God has entrusted to each of you. Are you committed to that? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of all of you Gentiles, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on your behalf, and I wonder, are you a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of everyone else in the body of Christ? Is that who you are? Father, I thank you for the ministry of your committed servants all through history. I thank you for the ministry of the committed servants of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
I'm thankful, God, that you've raised up men and women who are willing to pay the ultimate price that your kingdom may be advanced. And I thank you, God, for all the people right here at Root River Church who are committed to serving you and to giving you the very best that they have, no matter what the cost. I thank you that they've become slaves of Jesus Christ on behalf of the ministry that you've committed to them for the rest of this church body. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them for that. Lord, I ask that if there are those here in this body this morning who may not be committed to you to the extent that they are discharging their spiritual stewardship and the building up of the rest of the body of Christ, I pray that you would challenge them today. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up workers, that we can be effective communicators of your gospel, that we can be effective in reaching the lost people of the communities of Franklin, and Greendale, and Greenfield, and Milwaukee. Lord, let us at Root River Church be committed to sharing the mystery of the gospel, no matter the cost. That's my prayer.